right into it. Big thing, as you guys probably have heard, is the leak of the Supreme Court opinion from Justice Alito that uh, might overturn Roe v. Wade. It would if the opinion were the final opinion of the court. And of course, that's set aside. We'll get back. We'll get to this in a second, how bad it is not to have that be confidential. And who knows if they would vote differently or if they were still deliberating. And in any event, the court requires confidentiality and privacy in their deliberations to to do their job. And so whoever leaked that, that's a pretty serious offense. But we'll get to that in a second. That's that's sort of a secondary thing. But let's just talk about the case. If it were the actual final decision and that were the actual majority opinion that Alito wrote, let's talk about that uh, first. Glenn Greenwald has a pretty good take on this on his sub stack, and I read it and I, I agree with it. I also went to law school and know a little bit about separation of powers and how the various branches of government work. And just a few things about Roe v. Wade to start so you understand. If, if you were just listening to the rhetoric on both sides of this argument, you would not understand what the hell's going on. You would be completely misinformed. So just a, a little bit of background about the system and how Roe v. Wade fits into it. The Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. That supersedes any laws passed by Congress. It has to be, everything has to comport with the Constitution. It has to be within that framework. So even though the U.S. is ostensibly a democracy, it's not completely a democracy because the founders were wise to the perils of democracy. And, uh, and you can see, I can illustrate this pretty easily. Majority, you know, democracy is basically majority rule. And the problem is majorities can be tyrannical just like monarchs can be tyrannical or just like oligarchs can be tyrannical. Of course, the, the public can be tyrannical too. And just to use a kind of a silly example, let's say that uh, all the skinny people were a majority and they voted to oppress the fat people, that wouldn't be okay. Actually, in, let's, let's make it more realistic. Uh, the fat people are a majority and they were just really sick of seeing jacked people on Instagram at the beach, causing them emotional distress. It was causing their cortisol to rise. There were studies done showing that a rise in cortisol, this is actually true, raises blood sugar, causes heart disease, even cancer. And so that these skinny jacked Instagram people were causing them emotional stress and uh, they needed to be prosecuted, jailed and exterminated if necessary. Well, this, this could pass if the majority of the people were fat and, and agreed with this, but um, that's where the Constitution, the Bill of Rights comes in. It says, you know, Fourth Amendment would be, you know, people have a right to be secure in their persons. They, they have the right to due process of law. You can't just prosecute them for posting, annoying as it may be to you, an Instagram photo of themselves being super jacked and having a bunch of attractive females around them. Uh, that's not sufficient uh, to take away their life or liberty. And so the Constitution steps in, the Bill of Rights exists so that uh, we can't make laws. We can't make laws such that below this BMI, you, you go to jail or you, you go to the electric chair. Uh, we can't make laws like that because the skinny people have rights. Again, pernicious though, we all know that they are, they have rights also. And so I think this is pretty sensible that the majority can tyrannize a minority quite easily. And we've seen it obviously in our own history and that, that that minority may need constitutional protections against that basic separation of powers, the way the U S is set up. So the, the majorities will elect legislatures and those legislatures may reflect the will of those majorities and want to pass tyrannical laws that the majorities prefer, but they're 
bound with the by the parameters of the constitution where in the courts you know if, if there's a law passed that's that violates the constitution violates people's civil rights you can sue and the courts will hear it and roe v wade is just such a situation it is undemocratic so this greenwald's point was that people are saying most people agree that roe Ro v wade should stand and well actually it doesn't really matter what most people agree on this moment nationally the, the way it works is the states get to regulate a lot of these matters and in every state people have you know texas has different majority will than new york say so um, in texas if the majority were to prevail even more conservative states utah or somewhere abortion might be illegal there beyond a very early you know very early in the term so so that that's the background. So Roe v. Wade is undemocratic. It is basically the courts stepping in and imposing its constitutional interpretation on the limitations of what laws can be passed by the states. That's what and Greenwald explained it well, probably better than I just did. And people say this is undemocratic. What the court's doing? It's stepping in. No, it's not undemocratic. Roe v. Wade was undemocratic. What the court's saying isn't that abortion should be illegal. The court's saying that. It's up to the states to regulate that. So it's not it, overturning Roe v. Wade does not mean that people are not allowed to get abortions. It means each state's going to decide. Now, people who are pro-choice are quite sensibly concerned that in certain places, the majority will restrict abortion or even maybe eliminate it. So that is a that is a real possibility in certain places that that will happen. So that's real. But if the court does overturn Roe v. Wade, if this is the actual opinion, we'll get to the whole leak and where that stands. Um, that will not make abortion illegal. That will not do it in and of itself. It will be up to the legislatures to make laws. And then perhaps people in those states could sue again and they can re-clarify where, where to draw the line here. But, uh, but the Supreme Court is an undemocratic institution and it's by design. It's by design of the founders to guard against tyrannical majorities prompting their legislatures who represent their interests to make unfair, unjust laws that harm minorities. That's, that's, the, that's the reason, is the courts can step in and say, not just minorities, but also just harm anybody's constitutional rights, their inalienable rights. So Roe v. Wade is undemocratic. That doesn't mean it's wrong. That does not mean it's wrong. That just means at the time when they passed that law, the justices on that court, the majority, felt that restricting abortion was incompatible with the constitutional protections that you could not ask a woman to carry a baby within her body to term if she did not want it, provided that you acted before the baby was a certain in a certain stage. So these arguments that you know overturning Roe v. Wade is undemocratic. No, it's the opposite. That's what Greenwald pointed out, that the court is undemocratic. The law is undemocratic. That doesn't make it wrong. We have those laws in there to protect rights. That's what the Supreme Court's doing. It's protecting rights. So the argument would be, yeah, it doesn't matter what the majority in Texas wants. This is a right that women have that's protected. And therefore, the legislator in Texas is not allowed to overstep that. They're not allowed to do that. That's the way it works. I think that is an argument you would make. Now, what's my opinion on this? I, I love, you know, now that I have a kid, I, I love children and I feel like, most people, even if they don't think they want a child, might be very surprised by how much joy it brings them. And on the other hand, do I want to be getting in the business of what a woman has to do with her body, legislating, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that? No, I don't want to do that. So 
I'm sort of of the position that a it's a timing issue is really where the most of the debate is, and you know I think that's a valid discussion to have. And B, even though I think that most people will be happier having children and raising children and the joy that that brings. I don't think it's in the state's interest or my interest if I'm playing state, playing, you know, monarch for a moment to regulate women's lives. So I would probably either, I would probably actually overturn Roe v. Wade and then just pass legislation saying that basically the same rule in Roe v. Wade should be, it shouldn't be done by the courts. I think it, it should be put into law legislatively. Um, so it's not this big uh, political issue about, oh, we, we have to get these Supreme Court justices. Oh, we have to filibuster and not get the, you know, this, this, I don't think this is ideal when it's something like this. I think it's better if it's just legislated nationally that the state does not get involved or, you know, constitutionally that, you know, an amendment like the state does not get involved in medical choices. And I do think this, you know, ties in nicely with forced injections, forced vaccinations. And people say, oh, it's different. Well, I mean, in a way, it is the same thing. I mean, the the Roe case, I think it was decisional autonomy, bodily autonomy. It was sort of a, a penumbra of rights that were, it wasn't, you know, because abortion is not mentioned, obviously, in the Constitution, but there's a right to due process, a right to be secure in your person. And you can sort of take all of these rights as kind of a right to privacy against unreasonable searches and seizures and so I, I think I, I'm pretty sure in Roe, and I read it, I think in law school, but that, that abortion was protected, that the right to, you know, to terminate a pregnancy and not be forced against your will to carry the baby to term was sort of implied in the fourth and fifth amendments. And it was, and, and I, I kind of agree with that. I mean, again, I don't, I don't know that the courts are the best place to have that. I think maybe the legislature could, could handle it, but but that, you know, if I'm the state, I don't want to, even if I think, look, most of you will be better off uh, carrying the baby to term. And it isn't a small matter at whatever point you want to draw the line, whatever the timing is to terminate pregnancy, not the state's job or my job to say to somebody, you have to do this. I think that, you know, it's your body. And within a certain point where there's not, a, you know, whatever we say where that complete person is, that's up to you. Um, and, and I, and I, I really think it's similar to, to uh, the whole forced injection debate, my body, my choice, like just because you think it's for the greater good that I do this thing, it's much more for the greater evil for you to be able to say what I have to do for the greater good. So you may or may not be right about what's true for the greater good. I may not be right that this particular person will have more joy having the baby than, than terminating it. Or I may be right about that. But whether or not I'm right is a greater evil for me to control whether you're allowed to do that than it is for you to make the wrong decision one way or the other. So that's how I feel about it. That's how I feel about um, forced injections. It's just, it's just a non-starter in society. Again, the, the abortion thing's a little different because at, some, at a certain point in the pregnancy, you're, you're talking about a human being, a living human being. And I think a lot of the debate is just going to be about when that happens and and I think that's a, a hard debate to resolve, right? I mean, I, I, I think it's not crazy to say that human life begins at conception. It's not crazy. But I, I do think that like if, if a woman got pregnant, she conceived and then lost the baby within three weeks, would she even know? So I think, you know, things like that are relevant that like, you know, if a woman loses a baby at six months, she knows. And often there's depression and, you know, and it's hard to get over that. 
It's almost, you know, it's almost like losing a, a actual kid. And so I think that's relevant. I think that informs the experience of like what the entity is at what point. I mean, I think that is, you know, there's no science. Science can tell us the function of the organism and what it's going to be and what it's doing when we can definitely do that with science. But um, in terms of the value judgment of whether that constitutes a human being, that's not a scientific question. I think as much as a, as a, a normative question or a human question. And I think just the idea that someone doesn't even know they're pregnant when it happens, you don't even know if you've conceived, um, but you definitely know if you're six months pregnant, there's no way not to know that. Um, I guess there are stories of people not knowing they were pregnant, but, seems like at a certain point you would know. Um, so that's my take. I don't, my, my actual take on abortion. I don't know if I'm going to leave that in or not. And it's, 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 it's not that I care about the controversy or think my take, my take is pretty run of the mill, but um, it's just, it's not really relevant. I think the more interesting point that Greenwald made was just that this, this case is not, is not democratic. It's not about the will of the people. It's the court's job to subvert the will of the people when it feels the will of the people is violating the rights of others. That's it. And Roe v. Wade basically subverted the democratic will of certain localities that wanted to outlaw it, saying, nope, this is a right, this is protected. And if this Alito opinion stands, then that would overturn that and say, nope, this is a matter for legislators to pick up. And that's all it would do. They would have the very real consequences that in some jurisdictions, they would ban it. That would almost certainly happen. And then the women in those jurisdictions would have to leave the jurisdiction to get an abortion. And, you know, that's not always easy for a lot of people. So that's, that is a, that would be a consequence. And a lot of people, I haven't really harped on this on Twitter because I think it's so obvious, but like, if you're standing up for, you know, my body, my choice, but you were for forced injections, you're, you're just not going to get a lot of credibility with that. All right. That's just my take on that. And I, I recommend the Greenwald piece. I linked to it in my last, uh, my last post on chrislist.com, although I'm going to have another one before this podcast is out, but the one uh, called the about it's on the about section of the website. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, before I get to that though, I want to talk about my uh, birthday party. So it was my 51st birthday Tuesday and prior Friday, Heather said, she's going to do something for me. And we're going to have a, a party. And I thought maybe just like Sasha, Heather and me would go to dinner somewhere, but she actually invited my friends and I knew my friends were involved but I didn't know where we were going. So until we got there, I had no idea what it was. And it was a karaoke bar. And I would say, you know, I play guitar. That's my, my work. You can see my handiwork in the, uh, the intro uh, music. Uh, I'm not a great guitar player, but I play. I, I can jam with people. I'm okay. And I've sung some songs, you know, like on the acoustic and stuff. But I'm not a good singer. Like at a one through 10, I'd say I'm like a four. Okay, I'm pretty bad, below average. So I don't really, I don't really sing very much. It's just not, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself, um, but we had a private room. And of course, you know, I did a bunch of tequila shots just to get myself loosened up, but it's my friends and these people are pretty cool, but they're like, you know, they're, some of them, are, they're all younger except one of them. And they're playing like this, like, you know, the greatest hits wedding stuff, you know, the earth, wind and fire, September and, and flock of seagulls, you know, and I ran and they're like dancing and singing and getting into it. And I can't really fake it. I'm sitting there like trying to nod my head a bit, but I'm like looking a little sour. Like, this is whack. Like, I'm not into this. Like, they're trying to give me the mic. And, you know, I sang a David Bowie song badly, but I'm not, I can't get into the performance of it. I'm just like, eh. 
And so, so Heather, I could see she's drinking a lot because she's very gets very stressed if I'm unhappy. You know, it's, this is her idea of my birthday party, and I'm sitting there looking like I'm not mad. I'm just like this. This isn't my thing. Like I can't fake it. I can't pretend I'm into karaoke these cheesy songs. And I just, it's just I'm not moved by the music. I just find this like the greatest hits bullshit. So I'm just sitting there, and I could just tell my friends were like, "Oh, that curmudgeon! Like he's just like can't even enjoy his own birthday. He can't loosen up, whatever." But I had done like, you know, a few shots of tequila, some more tequila came. I did a few more shots and I'm like, all right, I'm just trying to think of songs to, that I would want to sing. So I thought of the song One by Metallica. I don't know if you guys know that song, but it's, it's a really good song before they got soft. What's really funny about it is so it comes on and nobody knows the song. So the, the other thing is the mics weren't that loud. So everybody's kind of singing together along with a lot of these songs. So you couldn't really hear the person who had the mics, their two mics that well, because everybody was kind of singing a chorus with them because everybody knew the songs but uh i get on with the mic and i stand up and the music comes on and all of a sudden i'm like going all in like i just felt it i, I wanted to sing this you know and it was like hold my breath as i wish for death please god wake me you know now the world is gone i'm just one please god wake you know it's a dark song you know it's about a guy who loses his arms and legs in the war and he and he's paralyzed and he's just like conscious but he can't barely communicate i mean he's just like in this you know prison of his body at the end it's like uh, landmine has taken my sight taken my speech taken my arms and taken my legs left me with life in hell and i'm singing this like meaning it you know, meaning the thing and i'm laughing kind of because i'm thinking man these they must think i'm such a psycho here i am being this curmudgeon for all the fun like september and iran or all these cheesy you know pop songs that they that they like and then i'm like going all in on this very, very dark song about a guy who lost his arms and legs and hearing at sight. He's in this and wants to be killed. Uh, basically, he wants to be put out of his misery. But, you know, it is what it is. That's what I used to listen to that. Uh, when I was drinking with my friends in college, I, I, we'd blast that and we would, you know, felt good. And it felt like an exorcism. I mean, it felt great to sing and get totally into it. And of course, I was, they could hear me because nobody else was singing because they didn't know the song as well as I did. And there were a couple other ones I, I got in. There's an Iggy Pop song, Passenger, which I got into. So there were a couple songs, The Clash. There's The songs I really wanted, they didn't have. They didn't have the deep catalog, but they had Rock the Casbah and a bunch of songs that I could get into. And I have to say, like, I felt really good. I, I really got a lot of, you know, singing is a, is a mode of expression. I got a lot of demons out by just getting super into it. And I was super into it for the songs that, that I liked. And uh, it was a really fun party. But it didn't seem like it was going that way. It seemed like. <laughs> anyway, I saw that was funny. So people thought this was harsh, a couple of people. But the Surgeon General, this guy just, there's just something about this guy that's so smarmy and like just weak and phony. What's this guy's name? Oh, Vivek Murthy. He's the Surgeon General. And he's just, I think he was, he was trying to penalize the unvaccinated. He's just one of these like, banality of evil like administrative loser psychos you know there's people that completely soft dude would never rock the boat but gets put in a position of power and is completely willing to do whatever he's told irrespective of people's rights and i i was on my other account and i was following someone else and they highlighted this this tweet of his and this is just this is just perfect he wrote he wrote during my medical training, I started going to drop-in salsa classes with friends. They were a great way to de-stress after long days in the hospital, and they helped me discover my love for dance. 
who's joining me in celebrating hashtag International Dance Day today? I mean, this is a Surgeon General. This is supposed to be a serious human being. And the cliche of, oh, salsa dancing, it helped me so much. I mean, this is the guy that's trying to force you to inject, to punish the unvaccinated, to foment hatred toward the unvaccinated. And he's like this pathetic, not even... Like I, I've seen Twitter bots with more personality than this. Oh, salsa dancing. What a great way to unwind. It, it's like one of those fake dating profiles or something. I love long walks on the beach. I love salsa dancing. I mean, who is this guy? I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I'm picking on him. He just strikes me as like the perfect exemplar of, of the phony losers that we have running things. God, it just, that thing just, it just really, it was just the perfect thing. So I, you know, I basically tweeted like, who are these phony plastic people, these dull-minded walking cliches, dutifully administrating the orders of their masters? And this is once an important job. Now it's a phony job for a fake person that just kind of exists to chime in here to help the agenda get passed. I mean, Surgeon General is supposed to be, you know, a learned, important doctor for the nation who helps guide health policy. This is just some loser. I don't know. It's just, it's just pathetic. I mean, so anyway, I... <laughs> That was worth highlighting that it's fallen. And you know, it's funny. Um, it's interesting. I read something and I wish I could find this article. I read this maybe more than a year ago, but it was on uh, Lenin, you know, Vladimir Lenin, the Russian, uh, the Russian despot before Stalin took over. And he killed, I don't know, four or 5 million people himself, Lenin. And it was very brutal. And this, I really wish I could find this, this column about him because it was, it's fascinating. But he said he, he punished the innocent, not just the guilty, because he just wanted people to live in complete fear all the time so that you couldn't even be sure if you were even doing the right thing. And one of the other things he did, and it's actually brilliant, and it strikes me as relevant with this new, absolutely pathetic uh, information czar, that she's like Mrs. Disinformation, and she's like the disinformation czar. Lenin would put total misfits. Did I say this last, last pod? It doesn't matter. It's worth repeating. They put these weirdos in power and it actually makes a lot of sense because if you put people who are serious people in power, serious people have real friends. They are not going to just do whatever they're told. They're not going to commit atrocities because the regime told them to, or they might, but they're less likely to if they have real ethics and ties and they're actually serious people. But you get a total misfit, a total clown in there whose status is completely due to the beneficence of the regime, uh, these people will be fiercely loyal. I mean, th these are lost souls who the one thing they got is from this regime. They will do what they are told. And, I, and it's actually smart when you are trying to accomplish ends that are maybe not quite constitutional, maybe not quite ethical to have, you know, NP they call them NPCs, non-player characters, these really just pathetic people in positions of power. And, and I don't think it's an accident. You can't put serious people in positions of power and expect them to do whatever they're told. They're going to resist. They're going to have um, ethics. They're going to have enough self-esteem to say, you know, fuck this. I'm not going along with this. Um, but you get these total losers like the Surgeon General or this, this kooky disinformation weirdo. <laughs> Those people will they, will, they will carry out their orders. They will carry them out ruthlessly because the regime is the source of who they are. Anyway, it's I'm dunking on this guy, not just 
out of pure malice because I think these people are dangerous and, uh, and the phoniness of him is not just some funny thing to, to laugh at. It's, it's part of the, I think it's on purpose. I think the, it's, it's on purpose that these people are, are chosen. A couple other thoughts. I follow this guy. Uh, I've mentioned him before, uh, Kapil Gupta. He's uh, I guess he's like a performance coach, but the vibe I get from him, just listening to him talk and reading his work is that he's an actually enlightened person. And I don't mean he's enlightened, like he's based or he's cool or he's whatever. I mean, he's enlightened. And I've talked about this before. I met a Buddhist monk when I was in college. Um, and when you drove to his, we drove a friend of mine and I drove to his uh, monastery, I guess you would call it uh, in Maryland. It was like a four hour drive from New York. And when you just get out of the parking lot, like you felt like weeping, like the air was so thick with like the, the energy from the place and you go in and he's just sitting there meditating and he's just very matter of fact. And I, we had gone to these Zendos to meditate and the, there was the, you know, American guy who was running it and he just seemed like a weirdo, you know I mean? It was just sitting on a cushion. Doesn't really, doesn't make you enlightened. It's there's the real deal and there's the imitation of it. And I felt like I'd seen both. And this guy was a real deal. Well, this guy, and I've mentioned him before, uh, strikes me as the real deal. I could be fooled, but not easily. I couldn't be easily fooled, but not saying I couldn't be fooled, but he seems like he's the real deal. And lately, uh, he's been posting some things on his site. Just find him on Twitter. I follow him, Kapil Gupta. That's almost, it's like speaking to me directly. I mean, it's almost as though like these posts are made for me. I mean, it's like exactly what I'm dealing with. But he talks about, he has these like dialogues that he posts, but it's almost like, you know, why is the master, why is the enlightened person not afraid? Why do they not experience a sense of anxiety? And I, I experience anxiety. Um, some, some of it's personal, you know, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to handle whatever challenges are in front of me? But a lot of it is based on where society's going. Like, are we going to be allowed to say what we want to say? Are we going to be allowed to live our lives without injecting chemicals that we don't want into our bodies at the whim of whoever's in power or whoever's I'm taking money from Pfizer. I, you know, these things make me anxious. I actually, you know, I lose sleep sometimes thinking about things are going south. Where am I going to live? What's the, a place that, you know, I can avoid a lot of this. How am I going to travel? These are all thoughts that I have that make me anxious. And, uh, and so that's just a thing. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, what can we do about it? How do we persuade people that this is a really fucking bad idea? How do we, um, protect ourselves financially and protect ourselves by having a second passport or um, living in a place where um, these restrictions are less likely to be in place. I think that's all valid. And I think we should be doing, taking actual action. I think that's legitimate. You know, if there's a threat, you take action just because you're enlightened, just because you're not anxious doesn't mean if somebody's trying to, you know, tackle you, you don't step out of the way. You're going to step out of the way, of course. You know, so I feel like this is like stepping out of the way of someone trying to harm you. So I, I, you know, I think these people are actually coming at you to harm you in order to preserve power. Um, and I think we should be doing all this, these things that we're doing, but it doesn't help me to have a sense of fear and anxiety about the state of affairs. There's nothing good about being fearful or anxious. It's not helping. It's not helping me be more deft at sidestepping the, the threats. And so he just talks about, you know, why is the enlightened guy free from fear? And why is the just about everybody else dealing with some sort of anxiety or fear or holding it down with some very stringent beliefs, right? You could be like, oh, I'm not worried about this. Everything's fine. It's all on the level. Yeah, Pfizer's just trying to uh, make us well. 
The government's just trying to take care of us. Why, why are you so paranoid? I mean, there's like an anxiety for them to lose those beliefs, right? So they'll, they'll manage the anxiety by, by having a belief. You know, I talked about this a couple of pods ago, this uh, fixing a belief over the cavernous gulf of anxiety that you have. So they'll have this, they'll deal with that anxiety by not dealing with it. They'll just attach to a belief, a belief to it, or a naively religious person who's like, well, Jesus has my back, so I'm good. And they don't want to think about anything. But if you challenge and say, well, how does he have your back? I mean, did he have the back of, you know, this other person who got killed and, and they get angry. They don't want to, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear a challenge to their belief because it's going to bring up the fear again. And the fear is the thing that everybody's tormented by the anxiety. So people go one of two ways. They either affix a very strong belief that they're very defensive about because that will assuage the anxiety, but they're now like living this lie and it's going to get counterfeited eventually with cognitive dissonance eventually is going to break through um, or they're living anxiously. They're not, you know, like me, you know, you have anxiety, you have trepidation about what the hell's going on in the world. And again, regardless of whether you're right or wrong, the fear is not serving you. The anxiety is not good for you. It is spiking your cortisol, it's spiking your blood sugar, it's putting you at risk of disease. It's disturbing your sleep. It's making you less effective as a person. So he writes about it on his site. Uh, and he's just basically, it's just a dialogue where it's like the master's like, the student asked the master, why are you not afraid? Basically says, yeah, I'm not afraid. He's, and he says, but I can see that you're afraid. And, and it basically comes down to, he's not afraid because he knows something. And the thing he knows is that life, that living your life will bring storms. It will bring difficulties. It will bring anxieties. It'll bring things that, you don't want it'll bring undesirable things that that you will want to avoid and that's part of life and so he says to the master he says oh so you're able to avoid these things and the guy says no i'm not able to avoid these things he just he's just able to live within them and i know that sounds really simplistic and obvious but i think that it's easy to say harder to live and when you have stress or anxiety about the possibility of something bad happening um, and you're thinking of all the thoughts and how to deal with it and what you can do and how to plan, um, that's fine. But if you're anxious emotionally while you're doing that, um, that emotion comes from somewhere inside. It, it's not in the thoughts. It's in the body. It's, you know, a butterflies in the stomach or a feeling in the throat or a feeling in the heart area or something there's usually a physical emotional correlate to the anxious thoughts. And I find that if I can notice that I'm anxious in my thinking and then focus on the physical sensation that's sort of driving me to escape the physical sensation with anxious thoughts and give it attention and just say, okay, this is the feeling. This is that feeling of doubt, this uncertainty. You know, we talked about fixating a belief over the doubt. I almost feel like the task is the opposite. It's to leave the doubt completely unfixed leave it leave the itch unscratched just feel the itch the absolute itch without scratching it you want to scratch it you notice you want to scratch it you notice the itch you notice the sensation of the itch you notice you want to scratch it you notice the itch you focus on the itch you start to examine the contours of the itch what does an itch really feel like how is it well similarly it's the what does a doubt feel like? Is this tightness in my chest? Is it tightness in my throat? Is it butterflies in my stomach? What does it feel like? And what are the, is it hot? Is it cold? What's this tightness? Is it like a throbbing? What is the actual feeling 
of anxiety and fear. And I think if you can just make peace with the feeling instead of escape it through thinking or fixating a belief on it and then not wanting anyone to disturb that belief, I think you get toward the point where no matter what happens, you are calm, you are okay. And yeah, you might get killed. You might get imprisoned. You might get censored. I mean, these killed and imprisoned is an extreme outcome, but look, World War II happened. There were people, many millions of people that died in horrible ways. I mean, that happened in human history. People do meet horrible ends. I'm, I know I'm not assuaging your anxiety by saying this, but this has happened. I think about this often, like, oh, that'll never happen to me. I'm, you know, this is, you know, this, this time, no way. But why? Why would it be that way all of a sudden? I mean, it just, there, those humans that died in the Holocaust or died under the hands of Lenin or Stalin, they were just as human as you. They were just as real as you. They had just as the same feelings and attachments to their families as you do. You don't know what's going to happen and you should take pains to protect yourself and your family. But, and, and, and anything is possible, but whether or not it's possible, because anything's possible, you could walk down the street, you know, we're getting worried about something falling on your head or hit by a bus. I mean, having a heart attack, it's all that stuff has happened to people. It's all happened. You're just a person like those people that it happened to, but you can't live like that. Right. So what's the, the solution is not to affix, you know, most people think, oh, I'm not going to get hit by a car. I'm not going to get hit by a car there. I, I'm not going to die in a highway traffic accident. Why? You easily could. It just, well, it just takes one crazy person or one person to blow a tire. Easily could. But most people just like, they, they put it out of their minds. or think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. But what if instead of, of doing that, you just felt every bit of anxiety completely, just felt it completely to the core and just made peace with it. Like we're in an uncertain world. There's huge, huge doubts of what my fate is or what your fate is. And just to accept that completely, accept all the feelings about that. And then, you know, take measures, wear your seatbelt and um, navigate your life such that you're going to try to have the things you want and avoid the things you don't want and protect the people that you care about, but, but not let your emotions get into the fear. Just simply accept the feelings of fear to the point where the feeling's not even bad. And I think, I think that's possible where the, the feeling that you're running from that makes you need all these beliefs when you actually get into what it feels like, it feels unpleasant and you run from it, but it's actually not that bad. It actually feels good to feel it when you're actually, when you welcome it in and you say, okay, let's, let's let this feeling come up. It feels good. It feels almost more calming and satisfying and relaxing than to avoid it. So, all right, that was just that. I've been reading his stuff and you should read it yourself. I'm probably not doing it justice, but it makes me feel calmer and uh, in some ways more resolute to do what I'm doing um, because if it's not driven by anxiety, you have better energy and more, just more uh, resolve. Um, last thing, I, I talked about this last week, but I wrote it up uh, formally, uh, my about piece, you know, and sort of like, why, what am I doing here? What, what's my value proposition? And I talked about this last week, but you know, people want, you know, if, if you're going to sell content, it's like, oh, have, you know, here's my cheat sheet with the winning picks. Here's my stock picks that are going to make you money. Here's my guide to three steps to starting your own business and making a hundred grand. Like people want that and they will pay for it. If they think usually it's a scam, it's not going to work, but you know, people want that. I think Rotowire was such a good product because it was just information, you know, that was really actionable and good, but it wasn't saying, I mean, we did have bullshit advertising. Oh, subscribe and win your league. 
but really what we offered that was most valuable was the information, you know, the, all of the curated information that we had. And, and that was useful to somebody and it could actually help you win your league. And so it was worth paying for. And people, you know, pay for the Bloomberg terminal because it gives them the same thing, but, you know, with financial information. So that will sell. But, you know, I'm more big picture, like what's going on in markets, what's going on in the Federal Reserve, Bitcoin. It's not like here, listen to this podcast and you're going to make a lot of money. That's not, it's not my pitch. If I knew how to make money, I wouldn't be talking about how I'm trying to figure out how to make money by doing my own uh, venture. I don't know how to make money. I'm figuring it out. So if I knew, I wouldn't be doing that. I talked about how uh, health is something people pay for, better health, losing weight. Well, I can tell you how to lose weight, no problem. I'll do it for free right now, which is fast, you know, time restrict your eating, intermittent fast, or just fast for a couple of days. Um, eat fewer carbs, cut down on the, uh, the sugars and the carbs, and exercise. There you go. It's for free. Now you know how to lose weight. It uh, works every time if you apply it. And then three, the other one is how to get laid. And I joked about it that, uh, you know, I'm basically married. I'm not officially married legally, but I've been with Heather for 11 and a half years. We have a kid, a dog, a house. Um, so I'm essentially married. And I said, you know, dude, if, if I, you think I'm dumb enough that if I knew how to get laid, that I'd be married. Obviously joking. It's very, it's, it's great having a kid and a, and a wife and a house, but I'm not the guy to tell you how to get laid. Um, if you're providing content and you're not giving people actionable advice on their most urgent priorities, making money, getting laid, um, getting healthy, then what is the value add, right? I mean, nobody owes you any money. <laughs> nobody owes you anything. I mean, they're, you're putting it out there and they have to find it valuable, yet they have to have a reason to want to contribute. And I realized the, the only guy I give uh, that I contribute to, the only paid content I have, partly because Rotowire grandfathered in forever, pretty much for free Rotowire access, is, uh, is to Glenn Greenwald. And I don't even, you know, I read Greenwald's really good Roe v. Wade uh, post, which I recommend, but I don't really even read a lot of his stuff anymore. I, I agree with a lot of the stuff he says. I I know a lot of the stuff he's talking about, about the Ministry of Disinformation. I understand all that stuff, but I still subscribe because I want Greenwald to exist. That's the main reason I subscribe. It's not because I'm getting entertainment out of it or I'm getting, I'm even reading it or watching the videos. It's just, I want him to exist. I want real journalists to hold the powerful to account. And that's what he is. We have these phony journalists who are posing as journalists, but really what they're doing is PR for the powerful and the, the powerful need them more than ever to whitewash what they're doing because it's when you have these, these phonies, these lackeys of the powerful posing as journalists and influencing people. I think it's just so important that the green walls of the world are there. And maybe I'll, I'll subscribe after this to Matt Taibbi too. I, I find Greenwald more effective than Taibbi, but I think Taibbi is important too. And he does good reporting. So, you know, it's just, I want those guys to exist. And so I'm willing to pay some money that they exist. It's just, you know, I talked about it last week. It's just like if you want a restaurant in your neighborhood to keep going, you got to go eat there. If you want a, a local shop to survive, you got to shop there. You can't order on Amazon. If you want to have local shops and restaurants in your neighborhood that survive, you got to patronize them. And, and so that's how I feel. So that's, I, I kind of feel like the generous people who've contributed to this podcast have contributed to my chrysalis.com site. That's probably why, right? I'm not helping them make money. I'm not helping them. We did do a health podcast, but you know, that stuff's pretty publicly available. I'm not helping them get laid. I'm, if anything, I'm, help, I'm hurting their prospects for getting laid because if listening to this podcast uh, sends them down a road of, of sort of dissident beliefs, that typically doesn't help you get laid. Yeah, the normies, they want you to, to, to drink the Kool-Aid. But you know what? You don't want to be with someone who's like that anyway. I, I'm just so lucky personally that Heather is extremely skeptical of authority herself and that I'm with basically a based woman. 
I know a lot of people who are not, and that would just be such a difficult thing to deal with in a time like this. So it's just very lucky that, that Heather's based, but I basically think of it, the Immanuel Kant categorical imperative, act only on that maxim you would will to be a universal law. So the question is, do I want Greenwald to exist? Do I want more of that? Do, do I think people should support the things they want to exist? Yes. So I must support the things I want to continue to exist. Or do I want to buy how to increase your Twitter following? I mean, I want people to support that, that buy the guy who's got the business tips for you. I don't really care if that guy succeeds. Nothing against him if he's actually helping people to whatever ends they want, that's fine. But I don't care if that guy survives or not. I don't care if his business survives or not. It's probably a scam anyway, but maybe it's not. Maybe it really does help people. But I, I would never, I would only do that if it had a very specific reason. But then there's other people who you just subscribe to because you're like, I want this discussion to continue. Um, and on that note, one of the listeners to this podcast who contributed, I just noticed he contributed twice and uh, I'm going to mention him, uh, Tony Safranic, generous donation. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. And he had a bunch of suggestions. He said, you know, I could have like read out different people who contribute. Uh, maybe even I could put on the site like a list of different people who are you know, make up ridiculous titles for them. Real man, super real man, wasted this much money on a free podcast. Real man wastes more money than he can afford on a free podcast that he can listen to anyway. Uh, maybe I'll come up with some gimmicks like that. But, uh, but he had a lot of uh, nice suggestions. Uh, and I, I already would do this. I've offered, I've said this to people, but nobody seems to care. But if you want to be acknowledged on the podcast, I am more than happy to do that. So uh, Tony Safranic, thank you. Much appreciated your uh, feedback and your uh, contribution. Also, I should mention, I set up a uh, pay section for my Substack just to kind of experiment, like what's, you know, what's the deal with it? And somebody generously just subscribed to a yearly renewing amount on that Substack generously. So I really appreciate that too. I, I wasn't, uh, it's actually renewing, which I said that I wasn't even doing, but I just experiment and we'll see. And please uh, cancel your auto renew if I, if I stop produ producing content. At least it's a yearly auto renew, which is actually better because um, you'll know within a year whether I kept it up or not. So anyway, that was just an experiment and somebody did it, which, uh, which is nice. That's it. That's really uh, all I got. I got a couple more uh, columns coming out on chrislist.com. I haven't done, but I'm trying to stagger them so people actually read each one. Today, I think I'm going to post the Tower of Babel, which I talked about last week. I wrote that up. I've got one on diet, which I talked about last week. I've got one on conspiracy theories, which I haven't yet talked about. And I will talk about that probably on another podcast, but uh, this one's long enough. So uh, till next time, take it easy.